Like Sam mentioned, we are studying the book of Acts this morning. If you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible. And uh, last week also we began, uh, again, uh, the public reading of Scripture. Uh, with Scripture reading, this is so important for us. The Bible tells us to do this, to not even neglect the public reading of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn um, with us to Acts chapter 7. We are going to cover 60 verses today. Entirety of Acts chapter 7. I think that might be a record. It is for sure a record in what Audrey is about to read. So I, I, I typically don't introduce the Scripture reading, but I just want us to focus in on the words here. This is an entire a sermon or speech given by Stephen, and we've been asking um, for weeks that the Lord might just use this sermon to open our eyes. So, so, so let us hear uh, the word of the Lord um, this morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed Abraham from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that Abraham's offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you were brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, but our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who did, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Audrey. It's a lot of text, right? But we wanted you to hear that because that is Stephen's entire sermon. That's the entire discourse he would have given standing in front of this council that we introduced last week. And so we will faithfully unpack this. I won't try to go verse by verse, but we will talk through it. And then we will get to verses 55 through 60 that in fact is Stephen's death. Stephen's stoning. You see, one of the most powerful things about the church, and we need to understand this, is her testimony of truth is the church's testimony of truth. As one theologian puts it, it says that the church, he says, is the truth-telling community of God. Revelation 12, John would echo this in verse 11. And he says that we overcome the enemy by the power of the blood of the Lamb and the word of what? Our testimony. The truth. But so often in our culture, Our culture co-ops the story of truth and uses their own authority to define the story of truth given to the church. You see, the way in which we as the church are faithful in spreading the kingdom and seeing God's power infiltrate our world is by telling the truth of the gospel. The power, the work of a man. A man named Jesus. You see, this is exactly what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says. 
This is Jesus responding to a question of his disciples, right? After Jesus is resurrected, his disciples go, when are you coming back? You say you're going away. When are you coming back? And he goes, don't worry about that. You're not to know when I'm to come back, but here is what you are to do. You are to pray and to wait. And here's what will take place. Listen to this, right? We've preached through this. Acts chapter one, verse eight. It says, but you, these are the words of Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Leave that up there. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do while I'm gone. In this this in-between time. I want you to pray and seek the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to give you, what's the word there? Dunamis, power. Power, why? So that you can build big churches and have big buildings and, and feel good about yourself. No, power so that you will be my witness. That you, church, will be my witnesses. Now, let's think about this. Why is it that witnesses need to be full of power. Why do we need this power that Jesus says if simply what he's asking of us is just to testify to things these disciples had seen for years in Jesus's life. They had witnessed the miracles. They had seen him do things time and time again. They saw his death. They saw his resurrection. They witnessed his bodily resurrection. If all Jesus is asking is, hey, just retell that story. Beginning to pay. Is power really needed? You see, one of the things that Acts is beginning to paint very clearly now. Is that the message of the gospel is something that meets resistance at almost every turn. If you remember just a few chapters ago, Peter and John before the council. Brought in because they were declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the council brings them in. They go, listen, guys, stop preaching that message. Don't speak of it again. And they left rejoicing. Going, yeah, right. The authority doesn't rest with you. It rests with our king, King Jesus. And guess what they do? They continue to spread and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you remember in Acts chapter 5, they bring in the disciples now. And they said, are you still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that we told you to stop preaching? So, yeah, we are. And you remember the persecution then goes from a stern warning to a beating. And here we are, Stephen, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in an Old Testament survey. It goes from not a stern warning, not to a beating, but to a killing. You see, the interesting thing about the word witness is that when you pull up Revelation, the last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 17, the same word for which Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, John uses in Revelation chapter 17 for the word martyr. Martyr. Someone who would give their life For Christ, their literal, physical life. What does this mean? I think it shows that the same kind of witness Jesus is talking about in Acts 1 that is embodied in Acts 7 in Stephen is not someone who simply is testifying about what they've seen, for that doesn't need much power. Rather, he's speaking about the kind of witness that is willing to sacrifice everything for the name of Jesus. That is exactly what we're seeing. What Audrey just read in Acts chapter 7 is taking place with Stephen. Now, that kind of witness, that kind of truth-telling church requires power from outside of ourselves. That's why Jesus says, listen, if you are going to be my witness, wait and pray and seek For the Holy Spirit to come and fill you with power. Listen, we do not have any hope of witnessing truly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have no hope of being a truth-telling community apart from the power of the Holy Spirit being alive in us individually and 
corporately. Stephen will become the first martyr for Jesus Christ. Why? Because he told the truth of the gospel. You see, the indictments against Stephen in Acts chapter 6 were this. That he blasphemed God. That he spoke blasphemy against Moses. He denigrated the law. He spoke against the temple. This is Acts chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. You can see the indictments. All of these things, the promised land, Moses, the law, the temple, these are all religious icons within the Jewish community. Like if you don't have those, if you speak against those, you speak against Judaism. Like the things that gave them the most identity and pride, he was speaking against in their eyes. And hear me, hear me very clearly. Stephen was not speaking against them. He was not speaking at all against them. He's going, no, listen, you don't understand them. You don't see them clearly. So, so hear me and don't mishear Stephen and don't mishear me. He is not doing away with these things. He's not speaking against them. What Stephen is trying to do by the power of the Holy Spirit is bring clarity to them. The why behind them. And notice the first question out of the gate by the high priest is what? These indictments. Verse 1. Are they so? Stephen, tell us. Are you really saying these things? Are you really blaspheming against Moses and God? Are you really talking about the destruction of the temple? That Jesus said those things. Are these things so? Are they true? And interesting what Stephen does here in his defense. And Stephen gives a defense here. His defense is a story. What Audrey just read was a story. In fact, it wasn't just any story. It was their story. Right? He's going, listen, this is, this is our story. A story they would have known. A story they probably could have, have, have retold better than Stephen himself. And so listen, this is a strange way to make a defense against these things that they're indicting him. This is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And we must understand what Stephen is saying to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus, what Stephen, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is also saying to us. Okay? And so the first thing is this. They, there, there are three things. Stephen starts out here. And I promise you, we're not going to go this, this slow the whole time. He says, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Notice that Stephen is not pitting himself against them. Stephen is putting himself with them. Brothers, fathers. He's going to use the same language. He's going to say, our father Abraham. But notice the, word that he, the words he says, Right after, brothers and fathers, hear me. Hear me. It's like Stephen is pleading for them to hear this story that no doubt they can retell in their sleep. Hear me. Stephen's first plea with them was to listen very carefully to the words he is about to speak, that the words that are about to flow from his mouth, what will hijack them? It's familiarity. And so he says, hear me. And what Stephen lays out is this Old Testament story of God's covenantal promise through Abraham, through Moses, to them. Listen, I think it's so important, even at this point, even in, in this sermon, in this talk, that we remind ourselves and we ask the Lord to give us all fresh ears to hear the story. Listen, in our country, in our society, in McKinney, Texas, right? The, the buckle of the Bible belt, we can become so familiar with these things. We can become so familiar with the scriptures. We can become so familiar with even, even, even who Jesus is. And maybe we even know the high points of his life. We even know, know the, maybe a way to articulate the gospel truth. We know that redemption is found in Christ alone. However... It has become nothing more than white noise to us. That really the truth of the gospel 
has no transformative power in our hearts and our lives. Oh, we know the information. We know the story. My prayer is this morning that we would hear this just like Stephen is asking them to hear it with fresh ears. God, give us the building Israel fresh ears. Like a child, a child in Israel could have retold the story Stephen just did. Romans chapter 10 says this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Listen, and this isn't just a hearing of our eardrums reverberating, but this is a hearing that penetrates our hearts. And that is what Stephen is pleading for, for these religious leaders. Listen carefully. That is what I, we are contending for us as a church, that we might listen to the word of God. And in the listening, it's not just that they need to hear the story again. It's that they need to understand some things about their story. But what is it about their story that they need to understand? What is it about their story, as Stephen would say, is is not clear for them? And Stephen, here's where he begins to deal with the accusations. He begins to give his defense because we know at some point, whether they've heard it or someone has reported back to them as the religious council, that Stephen has been saying that Jesus has supplanted the temple. That you no longer need to, to, to adhere to the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law and things like that. And this, it's making them angry, right? And they're hearing these things and they're going, surely he's not saying them. Surely he's not saying these things about sacrifices. Surely he's not saying these things about the high priest, saying that Jesus is the new high priest. And we now, because the veil has been torn, we now have access to God through Jesus. They're going, wait, is he really saying these things? And what Stephen does is he goes through this story attacking three sacred cows for them. And I hope you kind of picked up some of these. If you were listening to Audrey Reed or you were following along, he goes after three sacred cows. And he wants them to have understanding around these three things and how they don't have clarity around them. The first one is this, is this idea of the land. I'll give you the three up front. It's the land, the law, and the temple. Those are the three things that Stephen goes after in his sermon. And the first thing is this, the land. Right? According to their opinion, God gave special spiritual privilege to those living on the real estate of Palestine. The resulting veneration of the land and the status that went with it left little room for them to see the saving work of Jesus Christ. What we're talking about here, again, is not a priority. It's not that God didn't do these things. It is a veneration. It's an exaltation above God of the land. Right? And so what, what Stephen does is he goes through their story Showing them, read it, you can just, this hasn't been since the beginning, right? So go verses two through eight. We don't have to read it. You can just jot it down. This is where Stephen looks to Abraham, right? Father Abraham, right? That, that Abraham, okay? Right? The father of their nation. Stephen points out why this is not clear for them. To prove this point, Stephen looks all the way through Abraham's life. That Abraham spent considerable time in the land, but God revealed himself to Abraham. Where? Outside of the land, before he was living in the land, the point is this, God blessed Abraham and called him, even though he did not occupy, as Stephen says, even a foot of the Holy Land. Even a foot, he says, of the land, God blessed him. And then 9 through 16, still talking about the land, he says, the next thing is true about the 12 sons of Jacob. He says, God blessed them through Joseph in Egypt, not the land. Not your land, outside the land. Only though through part of the Holy Land they possessed, the only part they possessed of the Holy Land was a tomb. Was a family tomb. And guys, Stephen's going, listen, you venerate this. God has moved. God has worked. He is continuing to work outside of this land. It's our story of our fathers. And then verses 17 through 36, listen, his clinching example is Moses. He says, God met and took care of Moses and his people outside of the land. Moses was raised in Egypt. He matured on the backside of a desert in Midian and commissioned. God commissioned Moses at Mount Sinai and calls it, look in verses 30 through 34, he calls it what? Holy ground. God calls that ground, that land, 
holy. Holy ground is wherever God meets his people, not just inside a certain geographic border. The greatest miracle of Israel, in fact, happened in Egypt at the Red Sea, in the desert, not in the promised land, he's saying. Listen, you venerate this land. You exalt this land. And listen, it is great. It is a gift from God. However, when you place this above God, it's what? An idol. And you're missing the Messiah. You're missing the Savior by exalting a piece of property. Now listen, the Bible also talks about the property and lifts it up. It talks about how one day all nations, right? The ends of the earth will be gathered back where? The land, right? The land of God, the place of God. However, what Stephen is reminding these religious leaders is, is, listen, this cannot take priority over God himself. You're missing it. You're missing the movement in hand of God outside of the land. And what's interesting is who, who Stephen is talking to here in this council. These men were part of a group who would have been part of the, the diaspora, right? And you can write that down. The diaspora, meaning people who were exiled, people who were sent out of the land, who were now gathered back in the land. These people who should have been well acquainted that God still meets with his people outside of the land. And Stephen's giving this defense. But that's not the only sacred cow he goes after. He goes after the law. The law and the exaltation again of the law and the veneration of Moses. This is found in verses 37 through 44. Stephen's point in this section is this. From Moses' own words. Look at this. Moses' own words. The one they're accusing, indicting Stephen for blasphemy. These are Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18.15. Look at this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from from your brothers. It is him to whom you shall listen. Stephen quotes that verse from Moses himself, going, listen, there's one greater than me coming. Listen, my life, Moses would say, is pointing to the true Messiah. Pay attention. But instead, they focused on the law. And in fact, not just the adherence to the law, but the additional extra biblical rules and regulations that they put on it that puff them up with pride. That the Jews' hope of redemption was not in Moses or in the law, but in Jesus himself. And Stephen is saying, that is how it's always been. That's been the story. But you missed it. And the third sacred cow he taxes is the temple. And the idea that they would say that surely God is with us because we have the temple. Surely God is here that the temple is the place where God's presence is found. And Stephen answers this false belief and false security in verses 48 to verse 50. And he uses Isaiah 66. That what he's trying to get these, this council and all his hearers to hear is this reality. That you need to understand how God's presence works. You see, they believed that God's presence was contained inside this temple exclusively. And as long as they have the physical structure of the temple, then they have God's blessing, presence, and favor. But Stephen's going, you're missing it. Yes, in the temple is God's presence. But let's think even greater biblically about God's presence. Isaiah 66. What does it say? Read it in your Bible. It says this. It says, heaven, this is the word of God, the Lord. My throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? In other words, the heavens can't contain me. The earth is my footstool. In other words, my presence is not ever going to be contained solely in some man-made physical structure. This is Psalm 139. Where can I go, O Lord, where your presence is not there? Can I go to the heights? Can I go to the depths? Your presence is everywhere. And Stephen says to this council, Listen, you misunderstand the presence of God in the temple. You misunderstand what God has called us to do. And in turn, you have made it about mechanical, a mechanical relationship between you and God. Read Isaiah 1. Read Isaiah 1 to, to find out what God believes about mere religiosity and just religious activity. 
right? He doesn't call it going to church. He doesn't call it going to, 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 to worship. He doesn't call it going to the temple. He says when that religiosity, when that religious activity is disconnected from your heart, here's what God calls it, trampling my courts. Walking into my presence flippantly, God wants nothing to do with it. And what we've seen and what Stephen is articulating is that it's become merely a religious activity. God's presence is with his people. God's presence is found everywhere. Yes, including the temple, but his presence now through the power of the Holy Spirit is with his people. So Stephen says, you think you are in. You think you're saved because you possess the land, the law, and the temple. But you're wrong. Now let's just take a moment here. Right? And, and, and maybe for us, we're even going, okay, I, man, he's really coming against Judaism. He's really coming against the Jews. And really what he's doing is he's trying to not pit Jews against Christians. He's trying to tell the complete story of Judaism. He's trying to tell the whole story. And I think even in this moment, we have to begin to ask the Holy Spirit to, to examine some of our hearts and our lives. Some of the sacred cows we have that are very closely attached to what he just unpacked. Right? The land. I, that's probably all I need to say, right? That it's so easy for us to get caught up in a nation that is seemingly prosperous, in a nation that, 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 that is seemingly blessed and, and favored, a nation that, 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 that saw a sweep of Christianity like, like, like never before, a nation with so many churches to go, man, we just kind of inherit God's blessing, right? It just kind of comes de facto because we're in America, because we're in the United States of America. Listen, biblical prophecy, the word of the Lord does not center on the United States of America. Shocker, right? But it's so easy for us to fall into these traps. And let me tell you, many churches are falling into those traps. Where they'll drape the cross of Christ with the flag of America, the United States flag, right? Listen, I love our country. I love it. I'm so thankful for where God has placed us. But let us not fall into the trap of the lie. That the enemy wants to just kind of wash us down the stream of cultural lies and narratives where we don't hear the story of redemption. That the gospel still applies for us no matter where we are born. That the gospel, trans it transcends borders. It's the message for all nations, right? The law. The law, and, and, and maybe... A correlation would be the word of God. Hear me very clearly here. That this, for some people, the word of God has become an idol. Oh, we carry it around with us. We even, I've got some highlighting in it. I don't know if you saw that, right? We mark it up. We read it piously. However, the transformative work of the word of God has not taken root in our lives. The temple. Now this is not a, a one for one analogy. But maybe we could say this about the church. Surely because I attend the place where God meets with his people. That I'm good. Surely because I go and I hear sermons and I, I hear songs of praise. Surely. And that's what God wants, right? My attendance. My showing up. And listen, this is where God meets with his people. Listen, this is the house of God because the people of God gather under the submission of the word. Singing praises to God. But if this is merely a religious activity, you miss it. If this is an activity disconnected from your heart, God goes, I want nothing to do with it. I despise it. I oppose it. We need to hear this. This is what he's saying to these religious leaders. This is what he's saying to us. And this is, maybe some of that was offensive to you as it was to me. This was offensive to them as well. And what Stephen is saying, I want you to hear this very clearly, and Jim's going to put it on the screen behind me so that I don't mince words. 
Stephen is saying this through his talk, through his sermon, is that your view of the story, the Old Testament story from Abraham on down, right, is distorted and incomplete. It's distorted and incomplete. And Stephen is trying to bring clarity to this. And the scary reason, the scary part of it being distorted and incomplete is this. Is that they don't see that their role in the story is not what they think it is. That's what's scary. That's what's terrifying. That their role in the story is one of antagonist and not protagonist. It's not one of righteous. It's one of the rebel. It's not one that ends with them being with God. It's one that ends with them being separated from God. It's not one with them ending in feasting with God. It ends with them drinking his judgment. That is what Stephen is saying about the distortion and incompleteness of the story. They understand and he's going, hear me. Hear me. And the final thing is this. Is that they need to see the story of their rejection. That is a thread throughout this entire sermon. That basically Stephen is saying, you are in a long line of people who have rejected the men who God has sent to you. You have rejected them over and over again. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the prophets. Listen, all of these, scholars call them, are types of Christ, lowercase c, Christ. These are men who are not perfect, but they were sent to deliver and to save and to protect God's people. And they are merely pointers to Jesus. The rejection of Moses and the prophets by the Jews are simply pointing forward. Stephen is saying to your rejection today with me in front of you in this council. What is true of Israel, listen to, is also true of us. We are all looking for a savior. All of us. We all are in our heart of hearts. You can look all through Stephen's discourse, all through Stephen's sermon, pointing to these, these types of saviors, right? Joseph, who was cast out and killed, murdered, right? What they thought. Brought back to life to be seen again, only to be rejected. Moses, same thing. The prophets, he goes, which one of the prophets did you not persecute? But we need to understand this, that people left to themselves take a self-destructive course by rejecting God's redemption every time. See, see Stephen's whole sermon. He points to the factory, the idol factory, when they require Aaron to build for them an idol instead of Moses. Why would they do that? Because they wanted something that they could worship. They wanted something that they could bow down to. You want to know what's interesting? In verse 48, it talks about being made by hands, by human hands. You would know that's one Greek word. That's one word in our Bible that means to manufacture, and it's in a reference to those who manufacture idols. What is Stephen doing? What is Stephen saying to them and to us is this. That oftentimes we revere the places, the things, the land, the gifts that God gives instead of revering God himself. Stephen at the end of this says that you rejoiced in the work of your hands more than you rejoiced in God. Listen, that is our story. That is the story of Kyle's life that I took pride and I worshiped the things that I created, that I did over the creator. The gifts he gives in this idolatry, he says, has led you to be resistant and hard hearted to God. And the pivot in this whole sermon is this verse 51. Right. Stephen just laid that out there, all of that truth he unpacked. And here's what he says to them. You stiff-necked people. That'll get you killed. Right? You stiff-necked people, and they would have been familiar with that term. That is a term that Moses used 
for the people. That is a term that the prophets use for the people. It is this idea, and it's a vivid picture of an ox that is not tamed, that will not move, that will not bend, that will not go the direction that they're being led. You stiff-necked people. It's, again, an ox going, you're not going to move my 2,000-pound frame, right? Or however much an ox weighs, right? He's going, you're like that ox. You won't bend to the Spirit's calling. You won't move as the Spirit leads. And this is a scary place to be. And then he keeps going. He says that you're uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Again, another very vivid picture. This is why they want to kill him. This is why they are so angry. Stephen is saying to them who have dedicated their lives to this. They have PhDs on the end of their name in theology and the Torah. They know this thing. Stephen is going, your understanding in mere religiosity has made you as pagan as the Gentiles. You are no closer to God than a Gentile who doesn't know anything about God at all. That's what Stephen is saying. And he's saying you're uncircumcised of heart and ears. What was circumcision? Not literally, but biblically, okay? It was a sign of the covenant of God. And Stephen's going, you have the external sign. But what about the internal? What about the thing that only the Spirit can do? Stephen says, it hasn't happened. Paul would pick this up in Romans 2, 28 and 29. Look at this. And Paul, by the way, Saul is here in this scene. I would wonder if it even isn't reminiscent of what he's thinking about Stephen. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the what? Heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law, not by the land, not by the temple, right? Not by your veneration of Moses. His praise is not from man, but from God. The circumcision Stephen is talking about is something that the spirit does alone. Not an external reality, but an internal reality. Listen, I can't imagine anything worse for us or for them. And what makes this so difficult What makes this sermon so hard, I'm convinced of this, is that Stephen is preaching to a group of people. He's talking to a group of people, telling them a story that they know. However, what makes this so difficult is they believe that they are converted. They believe that they are saved, but they are not. And Stephen is pleading with them. There's nothing more terrifying in my life than when I read the words in Matthew chapter 7, right? Where people will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And they'll go, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all these works in your name? Was I not a pastor? Did I not attend church? Did I not do these things for you? And the response in Matthew chapter 7 from the Lord is this. Depart from me. I never knew you. Like that, that should send quakes down our spine. See, this is a hard sermon because Stephen is preaching to a hard-hearted people. And I want to repeat that one of the hardest things in the world is to see conversion in those who already believe they're converted. Listen, church, that's our area. That's our mission. That's the place we in McKinney, Texas, find ourselves in. In so much pseudo-conversion. That is why we, as a church, have to be so committed to being a truth-telling community, no matter what the cost. Listen, and that demands that we be, like Stephen, full of the Spirit and say, listen, no matter what the cost, we're going to tell the truth. Because this is the only way how we know how to love you. It's to tell the truth of the gospel. Pushing on whatever we need to push on. Pushing on whatever sacred cow we need to push over. And he says also in verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit. 
He says, you always resist him. Why are you resisting him? Now, in one regard, he's essentially just quoting Isaiah 63, which they would have been familiar with. One of the only places in the Old Testament that speaks and uses the word Holy Spirit. Talks about them rebelling against the Holy Spirit. That's why he uses that there. But I also think he uses this there as a way of showing grace. This way of saying, you always. What does it mean if you're always resisting something? It means that on the other side, guess what? There is this pursuit. There is this coming after. There is this, there is this, this beckoning by the Spirit. Listen, that is the good news, church, this morning, that the Holy Spirit, whom you have rejected, is still coming after you, would allow you to sit in a wood, uncomfortable seat this morning in this unusual building, right, to hear the message of the gospel, to hear that the Spirit is still coming after you. Please resist no longer. Do what Hebrews 13 says. Listen, if you hear the word of the Lord today, do not reject it. Yield your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Because listen... That's the encouragement. There is also a warning. There is a warning biblically that if you continue to resist the Holy Spirit, and I don't know at what point this is, that's not up to any of us to decide. Where Romans 1 is true, that says God handed them over. God hands us over to the desires of our flesh. He hands us over to the things that we want to be God in our lives. And he goes, you want that? Here it is. Listen, I am convinced that God uses hard words, true words, the truth of the gospel to make soft hearts like mine. So I'm pleading with us. I'm pleading with you this morning. Hear these words of the gospel from Stephen to this hard-hearted council. Hear the words of Stephen to us, a hard-hearted people potentially. Resist no more. Submit, surrender your life to Christ. And I'm going to read the end of Stephen. Verse 54. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. So angry. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, of power, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, only place in the Bible where you see Jesus stand up. Oh, it's about to go down. Jesus is looking down at his faithful witness. It always talks in the Bible about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. Now he stands. You just preach a whole sermon on that, right? Why does Jesus stand? Jesus stands to say, listen, their verdict is not final. I have the final word. Jesus is giving the final word. He is, he is absolutely punctuating what Stephen says by himself standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Stephen, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That Saul. And they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold, their, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the end of Stephen's earthly life. That's the end of his sermon on the gospel. Now, the final question is this. The final question is this. Who's really losing their life in this passage? It is not Stephen. We may look at this and we go, man, what an incredible cost he gave and what an incredible cost Stephen did give. What an incredible cost it is to be a disciple. But I want to submit to you, and in fact, in your praxis group, you're going to go through this. That a far greater cost is not discipleship, but actually non-discipleship. The far greater cost in this passage is not what Stephen pays with his life, that he joined the heavens singing praise to his God in that moment. But it's those who rejected the righteous one. So listen. I know one way to close this message. 
And it's this plea from the bottom of our hearts as a church, as a community that longs to tell you the truth. That maybe for year after year, you've attended church, you've attended Bible studies, you have done the religious duty and activity, yet you have resisted the Holy Spirit. You have not trusted in the work of Jesus Christ where it has changed your life. Listen, I don't care how religious and how good you think you are. You're on the wrong side of the story. You're not in the role you think you are. That apart from the gospel, there is no hope of salvation. Listen, that is as clear as we can be. But today, the Bible says, can be the day of salvation for you. Trust in Jesus. Christian, here is the message for us. Continue to be the truth-telling witness Jesus gave his spirit for you to be in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do what only you can do. That you would open blind eyes. That you would unstop deaf ears. That you would bring hearts to life that were stone, like you've done for so many in here. But God, I pray for those people who have been stiff-arming the voice of your spirit, who have been resisting the voice of your spirit for year after year, that today they would trust in the one who brings salvation in Jesus, that they would stop relying on their own energy and effort and good works and deeds and whatever else they're relying on, and they would trust Jesus Christ. God, that Stephen's testimony and witness is still reverberating 2,000 years later in a place in McKinney. God, is proof that your spirit is powerful, that your spirit moves, not where men and women take it, but where you see fit to take it. So God, I pray that you might see fit today to bring salvation into hearts of men, women, and children here at the Parks Church. God, I pray for us as a community of faith that we would be a truth-telling community of your goodness and your grace, of our rebellion and our brokenness. God, I pray even for the boldness of someone in here who would would wonder if they know you or don't know you to even have a conversation with someone. For those of us in here who do know you, to have the boldness to have a conversation this week of the truth and the goodness of Jesus, to share it with our lips and our lives. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the work that you're doing in her. Continue to do it. Continue to grow us and stretch us. Continue to push on us in those areas that we are falling into idol worship. God, we long for nothing more than to see you glorified. Do it, I pray. It's in your beautiful name, Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen and amen.